Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dagish America Presents. I am your host, Ben Harl, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined us. Okay, we've reached the last episode of the season. Hopefully, you've enjoyed the podcast so far. I know I have. I've learned a great deal from all of the guests we've had on, and I hope you have as well. So we've covered a ton of information this season, and so far, everything we've talked about has been either past tense or present tense. For this last episode, we're going to break out our crystal balls and focus on the future. Sometimes it's hard for us to see where we're headed when we're focused on the day-to-day, but the fumigation industry actually changes quite a bit. Usually this change is driven by regulatory requirements, but sometimes it's also driven by innovation and sometimes by sheer desire to forge a new path. And our industry has always been full of trendsetters who want to explore new ways to help protect our world's food supply. And these leaders always do so with a keen eye on safety as well as efficacy. One of these trendsetters happens to be a very good friend of mine who I had the pleasure to work for for several years. I can't begin to tell you how much I learned from this person, and I'm betting he'll have something to teach you as well. Ed Hasoda is the Vice President of Cardinal Professional Products, and he's been in the industry for over 47 years. He's been a guest speaker on several fumigation-related topics at countless events all over the world, and he has a knack for being able to peer into the future of our industry. He's joining us today to pull back that curtain a little bit to show us what the future of fumigation is going to look like. So please help me welcome Ed to the podcast. Ed, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great, Ben. Having a good time. Good. That's good. I I always enjoy getting an opportunity to talk to you, especially about things fumigation related. Uh, You're definitely a wealth of information, and it's always nice to be able to get some of that information from you. So I've been looking forward to this particular episode of the podcast for quite a while, and you're actually rounding up the podcast. You're actually the last episode of the season. I figured it'd be the what better time to talk about the future of fumigation than at the very end of the season. So you're it until season two. <laughs> okay. Okay, great. It sounds good. For those who may not know who you are, I just wanted to start out by giving you an opportunity to kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and what your relationship is to the fumigation industry. Okay, sure, Ben. Well, I've spent most of my uh, career in the fumigation industry. First of all, I graduated from University of California, Davis in 1977 with a bachelor's degree. But while I was going to college, I had a summer job working for the California Department of Food and Agriculture. And I worked on a program on a tomato plant parasite called broom rape. It's a quarantine pest for tomato plants. And the only way to eradicate this particular pest was to do fumigation with methyl bromide. So that's how I first got introduced to the fumigation industry, working for uh, an agency within California where we actually did fumigation of soil in, in tomato fields. So I opened my first cylinder of methyl bromide in 1973, over 47 years ago. So I've been opening cylinders ever since. So you've been at this for quite a while then. <laughs> Yeah, I have. And you know, I, I've been fortunate to be involved in just about every aspect of fumigation. I, you know, there aren't too many people out there that can say that they've done soil fumigation. They've done residential fumigation. I've done commodity fumigation of grain silos and storage structures and rail cars. 
So uh, I've done a lot of different types of fumigation, uh, just about anything that can be fumigated. I, I've had the opportunity to do that. So it's given me a lot of good experience overall uh, with all, all types of fumigation. That's pretty impressive, actually. And, and I think it's really neat that you've had an opportunity through your career to work with a lot of the fumigants that we use on a really common day-to-day basis now that you were part of introducing those fumigants into the market, like cylinderized phosphine, sulfuryl fluoride for use with commodities, with profume, things like that. So you've had an opportunity to really kind of be on the leading edge of a lot of the fumigation that we do these days. Yeah, that's right. You know, Ben, when I first got into the industry, there were basically two fumigants that were being used for post-harvest treatment and fumigation of food processing plants. And that was methyl bromide and aluminum phosphide, as well as magnesium phosphide. But those were primarily the only forms of fumigants that were were widely used going back into the early 1970s, late 1960s. And over time, and then especially as methyl bromide started to phase out uh, in the early 2000s, we actually worked with Dow AgriSciences at that time, where they had Vicane sulfuryl fluoride registered as a structural residential fumigant. And we tried to convince Dow to investigate whether or not sulfuryl fluoride should be registered as a commodity fumigant. So we did some work with them in the mid-1990s, and they worked under my fumigation license in California and did a lot of field trials and research with sulfuryl fluoride as a food processing plant fumigant and commodity fumigant. So we worked with them for about eight, nine years on this project to to try to get it uh, submitted to EPA for registration and then finally was registered in 04. And then shortly before that, cylinderized phosphine was introduced into the United States around the year 2001. And we had the opportunity to work with Ecofume and VaporFos here in California. But, you know, I've been a distributor and applicator of aluminum and magnesium phosphide fumigants for years uh, using the Dagish America products. And uh, here comes this uh, cylinderized phosphine fumigant, which I had absolutely no experience using. And you would think phosphine is phosphine, but it, it wasn't. And the thing that was so different with the introduction of cylinderized phosphine with Ecofume is it's 2% phosphine, 98% CO2. So with all that CO2 in a cylinder of fumigant, uh, we knew that it was going to create quite a different way to apply the fumigant because of the added pressure that CO2 would, would add into a fumigated structure because of the expansion of CO2 that occurs once you open up the cylinder. So we had to learn how to use or these types of fumigants before we started to sell them. Right. So we learned a lot about cylinderized phosphine in a short period of time, but ever since then, you know, the introduction has been really well. It's a, it's a great fumigant, just as aluminum and magnesium phosphide fumigants are, but it's just another tool that we have in our industry to help complement the toolbox that we need for pest management. So deeply involved with the introduction of those types of fumigants from the very beginning, and, and it's really helped by knowing how to uh, apply these products ahead of time because it had a lot to do with the success of, the, of these fumigants after they were registered. It was really critical at the very beginning with these new products that they were introduced properly and, and safely. So I was really fortunate to be involved at the very beginning with these new fumigants. 
Why do you think that fumigation is still important in the food industry? Does it still have a place in there? Absolutely. We still need to have fumigants. You know, with the FISMA, there's been a, a big focus on prevention of pests. So, you know, it all starts with sanitation. And, you know, if you really look at uh, integrated pest management, I, IPM, you know, it's using a combination of tools to manage pests, which starts with sanitation. And then you have other factors involved in, in the IPM program, such as exclusion of pests, monitoring of pests, using pesticides properly and, and at a minimum. Yeah, and that includes fumigants. And I, I think that's the overall goal for any facility is to utilize a minimum amount of pesticides to get the job done. And you know, I know that sounds different coming from somebody that distributes <laughs> pesticides. <laughs> But in reality, that's, that's what everybody needs to do. They need to focus on implementing a good pest management program, utilizing the least amount of pesticides as possible. Now, I think over the last several years, we've gotten some pretty good new tools to use in our IPM program, aside from fumigants. And I think there's been a, a pretty intensive focus on trying to utilize these other tools to get the pest management job done and minimize the use of fumigants. But we still need to use fumigants. Uh, they're gonna always be around in my opinion, and we're always going to need to use them. So uh, I truly think there's always gonna be a future for fumigants in our industry. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. I think that there are always going to be instances where you need to get that facility or that commodity to literally a zero count of insect activity. And you really, in my opinion, can't do that with conventional application methods or conventional pesticides. Even some of the stronger fogging products out there can't get you to zero at the egg stage or the larval stage all the time. I mean, fumigation is really about the only tool we have in that toolbox that can get you back to square one, so to speak, in these facilities in an extremely short amount of time. And so in, and in some of these industries, that's critical. You really need to be able to get them back to that square one point very quickly. No, you're right, Ben. But, you know, one of the problems that we always face with, and this has to do with exclusions. So if you take like a flour mill, for example, we can go in and do a good effective fumigation one weekend and then the next day they accept grain coming into storage it's infested <laughs> with insects so yeah. you're, you were back to zero population on sunday and monday you've got another infestation so that's always going to be the challenge that we're faced with uh, so we, we've got to do a lot of different things to make sure that we manage pest populations and exclusion is really important so you know doing a good job monitoring the incoming grain that's coming into the facility or, or even things like monitoring incoming truckloads of ingredients or pallets or packaging material. They're all sources for insect infestation. So we're always going to struggle managing these pests, regardless if we have great fumigants or not. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that, Ed. I think that prevention is the first tool in the toolbox that you need to really use. Sanitation, exclusion, preventing the insects from getting in there at all. And you're absolutely right. You can be pest-free on Sunday with fumigations. And then Monday, you can have a pest population again due to all kinds of different things that can happen. And that's the reason why the IPM approach or the integrated pest management approach and the Food Safety Modernization Act, a lot of the steps required or necessary with that are also very, very important for protecting our world's food supply, which is kind of what we do. That's what we fumigators do is we protect our, our nation and our world's food supply. That's kind of our number one goal. Yeah, that's correct, Ben. So 
all we can do is keep pushing forward with the thought process of IPM. It's absolutely necessary to consider in any operation where you're dealing with food products. So yeah, I, I truly feel that fumigants are going to be always necessary, not just now, but in the future. But what we do have to do is we, we really have to consider any of these new products that are coming online and how we can implement them in, into our program. Because I think it's going to be ever uh, always evolving as time goes on, as it has in my career. You know, I've seen a lot of changes a lot of different products, a lot of different pesticides, cancellations of pesticides. So it's, you know, it's always uh, evolving and we have to adapt to anything that comes down the pipeline and, and we have to figure out how to utilize these products to our advantage. So, you know, just because something new gets registered doesn't mean it's going to be successful. We have to take a look at it and figure out ways to utilize it in our programs. And uh, we're always going to have to do that. And that's one of the things that I've kind of always done with fumigants and other pesticides that we distribute is, you know, I hear about something, maybe research that was presented at a conference, and I always try to figure out whether or not it's commercially practical. And that's going to be one of the biggest challenges because uh, you get these chemical companies or researchers coming up with these different compounds and they report that, oh, this kills this particular insect. Well, my job is to figure out, well, okay, if it does control these uh, sets of insects, how can we utilize it in our industry to work? And, and sometimes it doesn't work. You know? Right, right. Practicality turn. comes into play with that quite a bit. Right. And so, you know, I think that's where our strength has been you know, over the years is how to introduce a new product and make it work in the industry. So, yeah, there's always going to be change, but we have to figure out how to accommodate these new products and utilize them uh, efficiently. Yeah, and we have new products uh, coming up. But I, another thing that I think is interesting, you know, we get a lot of pressure from the EPA and other regulatory agencies to you know, use these products in a safer manners. And sometimes that can seem restrictive at times. So I think our industry, we've had to be very inventive on figuring out n new ways to use existing products as well. So... Do you think that there are new ways that we're finding or figuring out how to use some of these existing fumigants that are on the market? Well, yes, uh, Ben, you know, you, you mentioned that there are challenges that we have always faced and we're going to continue to face because as most people know in the fumigant industry, all the fumigants are going through re-registration right now. And in my conversations with uh, regulatory people going back a few years, they basically told me all fumigants are going to have buffer zones. And so that was kind of a bold statement five, six, seven years ago, but here we are in 2020 and we're in the midst of re-registration for phosphine fumigants. And lo and behold, the PID comes out and they're talking about buffer zones for phosphine. So what uh, we've been able to do and what we've been fortunate, and I say fortunate, <laughs> but not really in California, you know, we've had methyl bromide. We still have it registered in California, but we went through some regulatory changes in California with the use of methyl bromide back in the mid-1990s, where we had buffer zones put in place in all different types of changes and regulations on how we could use methyl bromide. So we've been through this process already. And then when Profume was registered in California, we, we had to use the same regulatory requirements we had in place for methyl bromide when we use Profume. So 
bottom line is we had to figure out how to use these fumigants and, and still be in compliance with the regulatory requirements that they put in place. So we have things like treatment buffer zones during the exposure period uh, where you can't have people within X number of feet from the structure that's being fumigated. And then we had aeration buffer zones during the aeration process pretty complicated process on how to figure out what the aeration buffer zones are, but you couldn't have anybody within X number of feet during the aeration process. So we had to be innovative and try to come up with ways to minimize the mitigation efforts, uh, restrictions that were in place for these fumigants. And I have to say one thing about fumigators is if, if anybody can create or figure out a way to comply with the regulations yet minimize the effects that it's going to have on the fumigation is fumigators. They're, they're very innovative <laughs> yeah. in figuring out ways to get the job done properly and safely. So. Yeah, we've had to deal with a, a lot of different things in the past. And as we go through the re-registration for phosphine and then sulfurofluoride, we have a lot of experience in how we can hopefully negotiate with regulatory agencies to minimize the impact that these regulations are going to have once the re-registration goes through. So it's been a challenge, but, you know, we found ways to use these fumigants in a lot of different ways to be more effective. So we found new ways to use existing fumigants. Do we have any new fumigants that are on the way to being used in the United States? Yeah, we do, Ben. They're not necessarily new fumigants. There are some new ones that some of us have never heard. But some of these are fumigants that have actually been around quite a while. We have countries and researchers like in Australia that have looked at some of these fumigants you know, 10, 20 years ago and just never took off from there. So for example, one of the, the new fumigants that we're looking at, which is actually an old fumigant, is ethyl forming. And fortunately for me, you know, I've got a very good friend in, uh, he's, he's one of the major researchers in the stored product industry. He works for USDA ARS here in California. His name's Dr. Spencer Waltz. And uh, Spencer's kind of quickly become the stored product insect guru worldwide. Yeah. Everybody knows Spencer now, and he's he's only been around for a fairly short period of time. But in that period of time, he's made big headway in the industry, and he's become really recognized internationally as being the uh, stored product fumigant expert worldwide. So he's he's done a lot of research on some of these alternative fumigants, and ethyl formate is one of them. And right now, he's been doing some research on using ethyl formate primarily on citrus. And he's found that, you know, with these various commodities, and these commodities, I'm not just talking about California, but he's, he's doing research on blueberries back in the Midwest and other commodities throughout the country. But uh, in this particular case, we're talking about some citrus exports in California, where they're exporting to countries like Korea and in Australia. And, it, and it's big business. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in export value of these commodities. But, you know, we're looking at ways to eliminate, eventually eliminate methyl bromide, quarantine, and pre-shipment uses, otherwise known as QPS. And it's going to take a long time to really eliminate methyl bromide use, but it's, it's going to be a step-by-step -step process by commodity by country. Um, because that's the only use that we have left for methyl bromide is for quarantine and pre-shipment uses. So in order to 
eliminate all those different uses, we've got to find these alternative products to use. And so he's been doing some research on ethyl formate on citrus, and he's found that it's extremely effective on citrus pests like the Asian psyllid. Uh, citrus psyllid. And so he's found this fumigant and doses and exposure periods that are effective to get near 100% control of these quarantine insects so that they can use ethyl formate on uh, citrus to be exported. So that would eliminate the use of, of methyl bromide. And one of, one of the issues we have with methyl bromide on fresh commodities is it's pretty harsh on fresh fruits like citrus. Uh, it can actually turn some of these fresh fruits brown from exposure to methyl yeah. bromide, especially with some of the rates that we're using. So with some of these alternative fumigants that we're doing research on, the damage to fruits are quite a bit less than methyl bromide, and yet they're still effective in controlling the target pest. But the problem is, is are we going to be able to use ethyl formate on all these other commodities? Maybe, maybe not. And the cost uh, for registration of these products is enormous. I, I think just to get ethyl formate registered for use on citrus is going to cost about a million and a half dollars. That's a big so price tag. <laughs> that's a huge price tag. And so what's going to be the manufacturer's return on investment? You know, if you're only looking at the citrus market, it might be kind of tough. So that's one of the challenges that we have looking at new fumigants is, you know, is it worthwhile spending the money to get it registered? And what's going to be your return on that investment? So that's going to be very difficult, a, a big task that we're going to be faced with going forward with these new fumigants. Another one is ethane dinitrile, EDN. And right now, EDN is being used in other parts of the world, primarily for log fumigation. So that's another QPS use of methyl bromide that we're trying to find replacements for. And EDN has been used in Europe, it's being used in some other countries, and it's being used successfully. And I've had a little bit of work uh, with it myself. It's fairly easy to use, and it seems to be extremely effective in controlling the target pests that infest logs. So uh, we might see ethane dinitrile get registered here in the United States as well as other countries in, in the near future. But again, it's only going to be a finite target market. In this particular case, it's going to be log fumigation. Uh, so that's, that's another fumigant that we see coming down the pipeline. The other fumigant is propylene oxide. It's already registered here in the United States, and it's primarily used on the tree nut market, walnuts, uh, almonds, pistachios, where they primarily use it as a sterilant to control bacteria such as E. coli and salmonella. Well, propylene oxide does a very good job on controlling the egg stage of a lot of different stored product insects doesn't do a great job on controlling some of the post-embryonic stages, so the larva, pupa, and even the adult. So that's one of the drawbacks to propylene oxide use by itself. So one of the things that has been researched and started off about 10 years ago, where they started investigating the combination treatment of sulfuryl fluoride or profume and propylene oxide where they use a low dose of SF and a low dose of propylene oxide, and they're synergistic. SF is excellent in controlling the post-embryonic stages, and propylene oxide is excellent in controlling the egg stage. So when you use the two products together, you get complete control of all life stages. 
And then you add in the added bonus, which was additional research that was performed by UC Davis and then later uh, verified by Spencer Walsh, is that you also get near five log reduction of E. coli and salmonella, which is basically sterilization. And uh, so you get an added benefit that you can control bacteria such as E. coli and salmonella and get insect control at the same time. So this pretty exciting series of events that have happened in the research of propylene oxide over the last several years. So that could be coming down the pipeline here sometime soon. Um, we'll have to see. We've got to get past the re-registration process and at EPA, and then we'll, we'll find out. And I've got a couple more fumigants to talk about very briefly because there's still a very long ways to go. One has been reported at the Methyl Bromide Alternatives Outreach Conference for, for the last several years, and that's nitric oxide, which is being researched by Dr. Yang Biao Lu with USDA ARS out of Salinas, California. And he's done some pretty interesting research on nitric oxide in controlling not just insects, but biological control of bacteria and and fungi. So I think we're a ways away from determining whether or not this could be commercially viable, but in the lab, the data looks pretty darn good. So um, we'll have to look at that over time to see if that's even a possibility for commercial development down the road. And then the, the last fumigant I wanted to talk about is hydrogen cyanide, which has been around a long time. But there's a company based out of Prague, Czech Republic, uh, Dreslavka, that has hydrogen cyanide registered in various countries, but for very limited use. And I think one of the issues that we're faced with, with the use of HCN, is the name cyanide. <laughs> yeah, I think that, yeah. that scares people away. And, you know, I've seen videos of cyanide being used for rodent control, and you, they apply cyanide, and within like five seconds, you got a dead rat. <laughs> that's and quick. So, yeah, that's quick. And when you see something like that, it, you know, it scares the heck out of you as an applicator. If you're overexposed, hey, am I going to die that quickly? But uh, I've been assured that it's not quite the case with the commercial applications of HCN. But again, that's something that's being kind of driven by other manufacturers worldwide, but it's going to be or have a very limited use as well. So Bottom line is we have a lot of these fumigants that are kind of in the pipeline, but we're not going to have a broad spectrum fumigant like we have with methyl bromide, like we have with phosphine, where you can use phosphine across the board on all these different commodities and processed foods. And we have MRLs established for all these uh, fumigants worldwide and including codex. Well, when these manufacturers register these products, they're going to be for target markets because it's going to be too expensive to get these fumigants to be used on hundreds of different commodities or even tens of different commodities. You've got to establish MRLs. You've got to provide efficacy data. You've got to provide toxicology data. It takes time and it's very costly. So right. I think what's going to happen is we're going to have some of these new fumigants, but they're going to be very limited in use. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. I think it's uh, still pretty good that we have some fumigants that are coming down the pipeline. Uh, even if they're just in limited use, I always think it's good to have more options rather than less options. <laughs> so so I'm definitely glad to hear that we still have some new fumigants on the way. Ben, I also wanted to add to, there's some research done and, you know, we talked about the combination SF and propylene oxide, but there's a researcher, well-known researcher in Australia where they have a lot of issues with phosphine resistance. And he did he did some research on the combination treatment of SF 
and phosphine. And uh, data surprisingly looks pretty interesting. So that that could be something that we could see down the road. The good thing about, you know, if, if this combination treatment ever gets traction is that it's already registered on all these different commodities, both fumigants. And there's nothing that prevents you from doing a combination treatment applied separately to the same commodity. There's no restrictions there. So there might be something to that down the road commercially. Yeah, you may see some combination treatments of SF and phosphine. You, you never know. But if you look at the research, it looks pretty interesting. Now, I definitely think that that is an attractive option because you're absolutely right. We are we already have MRLs established for those. We already have pretty broad registrations for both of those products. So that would be a very interesting concept to adopt in the United States, co-applying both of those fumigants. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I think that that uh, is something that's pretty exciting for us. Another thing I wanted to ask you too, obviously we're not going to replace fumigation. We already talked about that. But are there some other products that are in the pipeline that, I don't want to say replace fumigation because that's not, we don't want to replace fumigation, but are there other products that are being developed that can be used in conjunction with fumigation to also achieve some really good results for the control of stored product pests? Yeah, I think there's always going to be some products that come down the pipeline that we can utilize in our IPM toolbox. I'll give you some examples of what's occurred over the past several years, and I think will continue as as we go forward. We've already talked about prevention and sanitation. That's always going to be the main focus for everybody. But as far as utilizing pesticides in the toolbox, I think one of the best things that's come down the pipeline in recent years has been insect growth regulators, one of them. There are a few IGRs that are out there, and um, there are more being developed right now that are getting registered for agricultural use in crops and orchards. But the ones that we currently have for post-harvest and food processing plants, extremely effective, very safe to use, very, very low LD50s, so the toxicity is very low, and they're effective at extremely low concentrations. And you can utilize these IGRs as a spray in in cracks and crevices. You can apply them as fog ULV treatment mixed with adulticide, fogging insecticides, and you can spray them directly on commodities depending on uh, which IGR you're talking about. So IGRs have become a really valuable tool in controlling stored product insects because it effectively breaks up the life cycle process, metamorphosis of various stored product insects and does it at extremely low concentrations and also has a long residual effect depending on the IGR, can remain effective for sometimes months. So IGRs have become a really good tool for our industry to use. And if you're spraying and fogging and not using an IGR, I truly believe you're wasting your time. You should always add it if applicable to your facility. We've been in the ULV fogging insecticide business for years. And and if you were to ask me 10, 15 years ago what was going to happen to fogging applications, I would have told you, and I have told people in the past, it's going to probably go away because we're trying to get away from these weekly foggings of having these mass application treatments in food processing plants on a weekly basis, you know, automatically fog every Friday or Saturday night. I really truly thought that those types of treatments were going away. And uh, in 
in a lot of respects, they have gone away from these weekly treatments. But what we're doing is we're utilizing better monitoring using pheromone traps, products like Tracee's pheromone monitoring devices. And uh, we're doing better monitoring of insect populations and we're doing better timing of ULV fogging treatments. And we're utilizing IGRs for more effective control, long-term control of stored product pests. So yeah, treatments have gone down, but they have become more and more important part of our IPM program. So ULV treatments have remained a, a big part of our IPM toolbox. Now, we've got a couple other products that have been really important and we've seen and used them and recommended them and saw how effective they are. Mating disruption. Tracy came out with Sidetrack IMM, which is Indian Mill Moth Mating Disruption Pheromone. I haven't sold a product that I thought worked so effectively that everybody clamored to purchase it and put it in their facilities. It actually did reduce the amount of fumigation, especially in facilities that had a problem with Indian mill moss. So I'll give you an example. We had an almond processing facility that historically had problems with Indian mill moth. And this particular manager did pheromone monitoring diligently every single year, counted his trap counts, documented it. And for the previous two years before sidetrack was registered, the population would typically increase in the spring and peak out around July, August, and then come back down. Well, when Sidetrack was registered, he installed it in his facility in March. In this facility, he had four warehouses that he would always fumigate every single year, especially in the fall. Well, he placed Sidetrack in his facilities and his counts dropped down next to nothing. And he hasn't fumigated those facilities ever since he started using Sidetrack. So to me, it's just astonishing how some of these products like Sidetrack IMM work. Now, I'm not, I'm not patting Tracy on the back, but you know what? They did their research. They created a product that works and it works effectively. And then take it a step further. They have come out with Indian Mill Moth IMM MEC. It's a sprayable, foggable formulation that just was recently registered, and they're registering it in all the states here in the United States, where you can actually add this into a fogging compound, or you can spray it and apply this uh, much easier than dispensing sidetrack IMM dispensers all over. So you could just add this concentrate into your fogging compounds, like our Vapex or Pyrex cylinderized fogging compounds, and apply it, and it remains effective for uh, weeks and weeks. And it should be as effective as Sidetrack IMM. We haven't used it yet, but there's no reason why it can't be as effective or more effective than Sidetrack IMM dispensers. And then one more thing, they have been working on cigarette beetle mating disruption pheromones, and they're going to be coming out fairly soon with the registration. So tools like this, again, this comes back to precision applications with fumigation or with fogging compounds or with pheromone traps or pheromone dispensers, mating disruption. With Indian mill moth, it's specific for that family of pyrolids, of moths. But, you know, we're targeting specific insects with these excellent tools. And then we have good broad spectrum pesticides available like the IGRs. So it's pretty exciting that we've got these products that are effective, that are in the pipeline, that are currently registered, and we have 
new IGRs that might be coming down the road that might be even more effective. So those are some of the things that we're looking at and uh, we have been using and we've been very successful and they're being used very successfully in, in the industry right now by a lot of different customers. So we're pretty excited about what's being used now and what's coming in the future. Yeah, across this entire season, I keep talking about how wonderful it is to work in industry where innovation is so important and where everybody from the president of a company all the way down to the people that are out in the field, everybody is interested and invested in innovation and trying new things to solve some of the problems that we have, whether it's regulatory in nature or whether it's pest infestation in nature, just the amount of innovation we have in our industry. I think is extraordinary because I don't think a lot of people expect that level of innovation in our particular industry. So it's really nice to hear about all of these things that are coming down the pipeline and all these things that are being currently utilized or at least being investigated and studied. So I think it's important that we have people to continue that innovation. And I think that you're one of those people. It's nice to know that you're working on these things behind the scenes a little bit so they can be introduced to the rest of our industry as we go. I only have one more question for you, Ed. I've asked everybody this season this question, and I'll probably continue to ask all of the guests that we have in future podcasts because I really think that it's an important question to have answered from some of our industry professionals. What advice would you give a brand new fumigator that's just started? Starting out in the industry. Now, this is somebody who may or may not already have a fumigation license. This is somebody new. They're green. They don't even really understand the fumigation industry quite yet. What advice would you give that person that's just starting out? Well, I can speak from experience. You know, getting into this business in 1973, and at the very beginning, you know, we had limited products that we could choose from. We had a lot of challenges with the products, especially on the regulatory side as, as time went on. You know, you have to have a different outlook on your career. It's always been my opinion that adversity creates opportunity. And so we always will have adversity when we're talking about fumigants, because let's face it, we're dealing with poison gases. And nobody wants to hear about poison gases being used on food products or, <laughs> yeah. you know, in their house to control termites or, or whatever it is, bed bugs. But adversity creates opportunity. And the opportunity is going to be there for people that have an open mind and have a yearn to learn. I've been doing this for over 47 years, and I'm still learning every day. And I think that's what makes this industry exciting is that you have to have that attitude that you always have something to learn about. And it's not just learning. I, I also find something that I forgot about, which as I get older, <laughs> happens all the time. I'll read the Degas Foss Toxin label and, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> but, you know, that's what you have to do. You have to have the attitude that adversity creates opportunity. And there's always going to be opportunity for individuals in this industry to be innovative and creative and find ways to utilize these products effectively and safely. Like I said, we're dealing with poison gases. And one of the biggest challenges that we have in the future is regulation. And the regulatory people don't want to read the news about some family dying from overexposure to a fumigant that was misapplied. And that happens, you know, every single year we read yeah. about something like that. 
We've got to eliminate things like that. The only way that we're going to be able to eliminate that is to find people with passion and the yearn to learn. They want to learn about these products, how to communicate safety to the industry, how to keep these products around for many years to come. And we've got to educate the industry. We've got to educate our customers. We've got to educate these new people or new fumigators that are coming into the industry, how important fumigants are and how necessary they are. The good thing about our industry, in my opinion, is I have never been bored. It's always been it's always been very interesting. And there's always something that comes up that keeps the interest going. And we've got to always think about better ways of doing things. And so for somebody new coming into the industry, it's been extremely fun. And I know many, many people, especially even, you know, on the Cardinal team here, we've got a lot of guys that have been here for many, many years and they've thoroughly enjoyed the business. They've thoroughly enjoyed the industry. They've latched on to these products that we're distributing. They understand the importance of safety and effective use of these fumigants. And they take pride in their job. They take pride in the industry. And that's what we need in the future is we need special people. And it's not a job or it's not an industry for the normal person. <laughs> yeah, You know, there's a lot of 24-hour-a-day jobs. It's a lot of hard work, a lot of sweat and tears. But once you accomplish and, and finish whatever it is that you set out to do, there's, there's great satisfaction in it. And so it's a great industry to be in, but it takes a special type of person. And, and that's what we need. We need more people like who we have on the Dagish team and the Cardinal team, people that want to find opportunity and uh, use adversity to our advantage for the future use of these fumigants. So anyway, it's been a fun industry. I'd highly recommend it to everybody, but you've got to be a special person. And you, you've got to have that desire to continuously improve yourself as well as the industry. I couldn't agree with you more, Ed. I definitely think that you hit the nail on the head there. Our industry is so interesting. I really like to use the term one collar has to be a blue collar and the other collar has to be a white collar. You know, most of the fumigators or individuals that work in our industry have to have the office mentality, have to understand regulatory requirements and paperwork and certifications and licensing. So you have to be able to understand all of that. But at the same point in time, you have to be able to go out into the field and not be scared to get your hands dirty too. So everybody that works in this industry, it's a blue collar on one side and a white collar on the other side. These people have to be able to do both in order to be successful. And you're right, it takes a special person to do that. I'm so glad that I got into the industry myself, and I'm so glad that I've had an opportunity to work with people such as yourself that have actually helped me learn and grow through my career. And so I thank you for that. And I also thank you for taking some time out of your day today to talk to me and the rest of our listening audience and helping us understand some of the future that we have to look forward to with fumigation. Well, Ben, it's been my pleasure. You know, if there's any way I can ever share my experience with anybody and pass the torch to new young people, I'll do everything I can. We need to keep the industry going. The, the advantage that some of the old timers like myself have is, you know, we've been through all this for many years and I'll do everything I can to pass the torch to these good young new fumigators so that they can carry on in, into the future. Well, thanks a lot, Ed. I really appreciate your time today. All right, Ben. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Oh, anytime. I want to thank Ed for talking to us today about the future of fumigation. You know, it's sometimes difficult to peer into the future and gauge what's in store. And I'm really glad we have folks like Ed to help us manage the future of our industry. 
And that's it, folks. That's a wrap on season one of Degish America Presents. I've had such a great time talking to all of you and learning from industry professionals along the way. You know, I said on episode one that the goal of this podcast was to bring insight, news, and knowledge to the folks who work in the pest control industry, specifically as it pertains to the protection of the world's food supply. I hope we were able to achieve that goal. Our industry is so important, and I'm glad that I have an opportunity to bring that importance to light. We're already working on season two, so make sure you stay subscribed. In the meantime, if you have any questions about this episode's topic or any other questions relating to the industry, please make sure to reach out to us. You can find us at degishamerica.com or on all of the main social media outlets. And you can also feel free to email us at info at And so, until season two, I'm Ben Harl, and I hope you have a safe and terrific day.